I'm Chris Johnson. I'm the worship pastor here uh, at Church at Cane Bay. And today, instead of singing with you, I get to talk at you for a few minutes. So um, as you can see, we're starting a new series this week called Divine Diversity. What's really cool is those are actually some local church planters right here in the Charleston area that are planting uh, multi-ethnic and diverse, intentionally diverse churches, which is super cool. Um, If you haven't been here over the last few weeks and months, um, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And so uh, we've been kind of just preaching whatever is next on the schedule as we walk through the book of Acts. And Acts kind of outlines the birth of the early church uh, and, and what the Spirit of God did through the early church and what God might want to do here through our church. And so in Acts 1 and 2, uh, we said that the Spirit lit the flame that is the early church. And so we called that series Ignite. We talked about how God wants to ignite uh, with his Spirit in us today. And then in Acts 3 and 4, uh, we called that series Courageous um, because what we saw was that the Spirit gave the early church this supernatural boldness to declare the gospel even in the face of adversity and persecution and trial and hardship that the church still persevered and was courageous enough to declare the gospel at all costs. And then uh, Acts 5, 6, and 7, we called that series Unstoppable. If you were here, you remember that there were a lot of internal and external forces that were trying to stop what God was doing, this amazing movement of God. There were these forces that were pressing in on the church that were trying to stop what God was doing, but what we said was that when God's up to something, there's nothing and no one that can stop him, amen? And so in chapters 8 and 9, we talked about multiplying. We called that series Multiplying, and uh, we just wrapped that series up last week. The reason that we called that series Multiply is because what we started to see was even though the church, the the birth of the church started in Jerusalem, uh, it made its way out rapidly. And instead of just adding a few numbers uh, in Jerusalem, it started to get to all these different nations and provinces. It spread to the whole known world. And all of a sudden, instead of hundreds and thousands, we're starting to talk about millions of Christians all over the globe. And so we said that, that the gospel multiplied Um, greatly. And so today we're going to start in chapter 10 of Acts. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Acts chapter 10. We're going to work through a good chunk of this passage in chapter 10 this morning. Uh, If you have the YouVersion app on your phone, you can go to events and search church at Cane Bay uh, and we'll be there too. The notes will all be there and they'll be up on the screen as well. So um, let me just say this as we get started. In this book, the book of Acts, we have seen some amazing things. We've seen Lame men healed and walking, jumping, praising God. Uh, We've seen hearts changed. We've seen lives changed. We've seen God do incredible things. We even last week we saw somebody risen from the dead in our story, the Aeneas and Dorcas story. Dorcas is risen from the dead. It's this crazy thing. And I just want to say this as we get started that I truly believe that. All of these things that we've seen are signs in the early church. And these signs don't point to how great the church was or the apostles or their power, but instead it points to the power of the Spirit in his people. It points to the power of Jesus to transform lives and families and communities. And as we go over these next four weeks and we dig into chapters 10 and 11, we're going to start to see the intentional diversity of the early church. And my belief, as we dig into this, 
And my prayer is that we would see that this is just as much of a sign of the power of God to transform his church as any of these other signs. Just as much as seeing a lame man walk or, or a dead person raised to life, the fact that we see a church that is intentionally diverse in Acts chapters 10 and 11 is a massive sign of the power of God. Now before we jump into this scripture this morning, I want to show you a quick graphic. Um, many of you know, some of you may not, that my wife Alyssa and I moved uh, down here from the Detroit area, from the metro Detroit area, uh, about four years ago. We're coming up on four years now. And uh, this is a picture here of the metro Detroit area. It's kind of small, so it might be hard to see, but I'll kind of interpret it for you. So this road that's going across the middle of the screen, that's Eight Mile Road. If you know anything about Eminem, you know about Eight Mile. Um, but... Eight Mile Road um, is kind of a dividing line in the metro Detroit area. And south of Eight Mile is, is the Detroit city limits, and north of Eight Mile is where metro Detroit kind of starts, right? And so we have this Eight Mile Road, and the green dots that you see on the screen are black families living homes and all those things. The, the blue dots that you see on the screen are white families. And then that little pocket there, the red little pocket, is, is uh, Asian, Asian families. And so, as you can see, this is a very segregated area. This is a recent graphic. This isn't an old graphic. Detroit is one of the most segregated cities in America, even to this day. And it's pretty wild. I mean, when we moved up there, I just couldn't believe. It was, it's literally block by block and mile by mile. There's, it's like, oh, well, you look like this, you're going to live here. And, you know, you look like this, you're going to live there and, and I want to show you this next picture here. This is actually the infamous eight mile wall. It's not eight miles long, it's the up and down eight mile. And this is a wall that, as far to my knowledge, it's still there to this day. This is a picture from 1941. Um, it looks a little different now, but, but this wall still exists. And essentially, what it was for is that there were certain neighborhoods where white families lived and certain neighborhoods where black families lived, right? We know this, and, and to, there were, the neighborhoods were adjacent, um, and so you had like black families that lived in one, house, you know, one side of the, the neighborhood and white families that lived in the other side of the neighborhood, and they put this wall up to kind of divide between the two. That wall still stands to this day. Now, there are a lot of reasons that this kind of sorting happens, and I'm, we're not going to get really into that. Uh, today. It's not always as obvious as it is in Detroit, right? It's not always right up in front of us, and it's not always so easy for us to see. Sometimes there aren't concrete walls, but sometimes there are ideological walls or relational walls, right, that separate us. And it's a natural thing for us to kind of just flock with people that look, act, and think like we do. It's bigger than just race. It's it's ethnicity, it's culture, it's socioeconomic background. We all tend to kind of flock with people that look, act, and think like us. You would think that this would be a problem in culture. It wouldn't be as big of a deal in the church. But Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week in America. And the sad truth is, is that he said this decades ago. And for the most part, and in most churches, and in most cities, it's still true. And so it's not just a problem in culture, but it's a problem in our church. And we see this natural sorting 
that happens. These kinds of walls or barriers exist everywhere, in every city. Maybe, like I said, it's not an actual concrete wall, but there are things and there are forces and there are ideologies and there are ways of life and there are cultures that keep us, we live in proximity to, to each other, but we're not actually together. We live around each other. We shop at the same grocery stores or frequent the same movie theaters, but, but often we're not actually together, and it happens in our churches as well. So the question that I want to address this morning is, as Christians, what are we supposed to do about that? Is there a calling that God has put on us as Christians in this matter? And I'm just going to say it outright as we get into it. I think that as followers of Jesus, it's our calling to overcome these barriers and to break them down. So let's go ahead and jump into the passage. We'll see what God has to say to us this morning. But before that, I want to pray. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning, and we are just so thankful for your presence in this place. God, I'm thankful for your people gathered on a Sunday morning, uh, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, we pray that as we dig into Scripture this morning, that uh, my words and, and my opinions would would fall to the wayside, but Jesus, that you would speak, that you would be revealed today through the reading of Scripture. Jesus, as we, as we dig in this morning, we pray that your Spirit uh, would speak clearly to us, that you would convict our hearts, that you'd challenge us, and you'd encourage us this morning. God, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. All right, let's jump right in. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So let's pause real quick. There are a few words in here that are bigger words, harder to understand. We don't use them a lot, right? Um, we need to understand what's going on in this passage, but before we can understand that, I think we need to understand where it's happening and who it's happening to, right? So let's start with who it's happening to. Luke mentions this man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Roman citizen. He's a Roman soldier. And it says that he's a centurion, which essentially means that he has served many years in the Roman army, and he's worked up a good name for himself, probably made a good bit of money for himself, and he's fairly successful. He's in charge of multiple battalions of Roman soldiers. So he's kind of, kind of a big deal. Most biblical scholars think that he was a little bit older in his uh, years of service with the Roman army, and so he probably is close to retirement age if he's not already retired, um, but he's living in this port city named Caesarea. Now, Caesarea wasn't always named Caesarea. Caesarea is named after the Roman emperor Caesar, and so we have, we have this Jewish town. It's a port city, very similar to Charleston. It's gorgeous if you look up photos, but there's this port city that the Jews lived in, and Rome came in just like they did with almost every other known country in, in the ancient world, and they were the big bad guys, and they just dominated and took over this city and renamed it Caesarea. I want you to imagine, like, this is like if Russia was to invade, and they were to take over Charleston, and all of a sudden it's no longer Charleston, it's Putinville, right? It's funny even saying that, right? It wouldn't go over very well, right? You guys imagining this? This is what the Jews are living with. And actually, most ancient scholars believe that in Caesarea at the time, 
it's no longer predominantly Jewish people that live there. They actually believe that more than half of the folks that live in Caesarea at this point are Gentiles or people that aren't Jews, which is really, really interesting. Um, with the way that Rome kind of worked is wherever they went, they took soldiers and slaves. And so you had all these different nations and ethnicities and races all kind of just being swept up into this huge thing that was called Rome. And now all of a sudden you have this Jewish port city that has become this humongous melting pot. And you've got all of these different kinds of people that all live in the same area. The problem is, is that they lived in proximity to each other, but they weren't actually together. Sound familiar? So what's interesting here is that Cornelius is not Jewish, right? He is Roman. I don't know. He, there, some scholars think he may have been Italian. There's, there's not really a lot of, um, not a lot of background on this guy. Um, but what we do know is that he's not Jewish. But what's interesting is that this story starts by talking about Cornelius and by talking about what a great guy he is. It said that he feared God, he gave to the poor, and he prayed continually. So the first snapshot that we get of Cornelius is that he's a Gentile. The Gentiles and the Jews did not like each other. They did not get along. And if you're a Jewish person reading the book of Acts for the first time, you're reading that there's this Gentile that's actually a pretty good guy. He prays a lot. He's a really nice guy. He gives a lot. Let's, let's follow the story in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So Luke tells us that an angel comes to Cornelius in a vision. A couple interesting things here. One, Scripture tells us, Luke tells us, that Cornelius is praying at the ninth hour, which would have been about 3 p.m. This is when Jews would normally pray. So Cornelius is a Gentile that's following the Jewish prayer rhythms, which is just kind of an interesting thing. The second thing is this. Throughout the Bible and throughout Jewish history, if an angel came to you in a vision, it was considered a massive privilege. It's a huge deal. If an angel comes to you and delivers a message directly to you, that's kind of a big deal, right? It's something that God, that's really, really important to God. And so this book starts, or this chapter starts, with a Roman centurion who's praying like a Jew, and then, and then an angel comes to him. And essentially what the angel says is, Cornelius, God hears you. He sees you. God notices your worship. He has something for you to do. This is just kind of a, a weird start to the story. All I want to say about this part of the passage is this. God uses and chooses people that we often overlook or ignore. God uses people that we often overlook or ignore. It's always been God's MO. Look throughout Scripture. Look throughout Christian history. God usually doesn't use the person who's most well-equipped. God usually doesn't use the person who's, who's most fit. God usually uses the people that you'd least expect him to use to do his will. And this is exactly what's happening here. If you're a Jewish person and you're reading this, 
and you're reading that this Gentile Roman soldier is getting commissioned by God to do something, it would feel so just far out and wild. But this is exactly what's happening here at the beginning of the story. Let's keep digging in. Verse 5. And now send men to Joppa. So this is what the angel's telling him to do. Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, I'll just get this out front. There are too many Simons in this passage, right? You get confused the first time reading through. It's like, I gotta, wait, let me read that again. So there's Simon Peter. He's the Peter that we've been following all throughout the book of Acts so far, right? He's big, he's kind of a a big deal in in the birth of the early church. And so a lot of these miracles, and he's one of the apostles that we've kind of been following as we walk through, right? And so Peter's been in a lot of these stories that we've read. This is Simon Peter. Now Simon Peter is staying at this house of a man named Simon the Tanner. So Simon the Tanner owns the house that Peter's staying at. You got it? Cool? We're cleared up on the Simons? Here's the other interesting thing about what is just said here. There's so much tension loaded into this story that we're reading it 2,000 years later. We really can overlook it or not get it at all if we don't pay attention. It's important for us to know that roughly a generation or two after this book would have been written, Rome decided to go on an all-out siege against the Jews. In AD 70, they attacked the city of Jerusalem, killed thousands drove them out of the city. Their temple was in Jerusalem and they tore it down brick by brick as a sign of disrespect to their God and their worship. So by the time that this book would have been circulating and you would have been an early Jew reading about what happened, the the events of the early church, you're reading that two servants of Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, and a Roman soldier are being sent to go get Peter. If you're a Jew and you're reading this, there are chances, a very, very strong chance, that you're reading this and you have family members that have died at the hands of a Roman soldier. You don't like Romans and you don't like Gentiles. You hear me? And it's just interesting, Cornelius sends two servants and a soldier to go get Peter. It's kind of scary. There's a lot of ethnic tension going on here. On top of this, the Jewish people had some really strict customs at this point in history. They had, you know, ideas of what they should and shouldn't eat, which we'll get into that in just a minute. But even more important than their diet, they had regulations on who they would eat with. So it's really interesting. They wouldn't even go into, wouldn't even step across the threshold of a Gentile's house, so somebody that's not Jewish. If you're not Jewish, you're considered unclean or dirty. And often they wouldn't even step into a Gentile's house. But maybe you weren't as strict of a Jew. You're not that religious, so sometimes, occasionally, you'll step into their house to buy something or whatnot, right? Some occasionally, some Jews may step into a Gentile's house, but what they would never, ever do is eat with them. Because those people are dirty. If I eat with dirty people, I become dirty. That's just kind of how it works, right? And this is the way that the Jews lived, and this was normal to them. So, 
Let's pick back up with the story, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So we pick the story back up, and Peter's getting kind of hangry, right? His belly's growling, it's lunchtime. It is actually noon in this story. It's lunchtime, right? So he's getting really hungry. Have you ever been so hungry that you started seeing things? No, I haven't. I kind of imagine like, like driving down 26 and I'm just getting mirages of vicious biscuit, like just, oh, I need it. Um, but Peter's so hungry and he starts praying. Um, it's interesting, he's not praying at a normal prayer time, he's just praying, just to pray, um, which is a good example for us, I think. But anyway, he's praying and he has this crazy vision, you know? And in the vision, this sheet is being lowered down with all different kinds of animals in it, which means that these different kinds of animals would have been both clean animals and unclean animals. Now here's the thing, is if you're a strict Jew like Peter was, if an unclean animal so much as touches a clean animal, that clean animal is now deemed unclean and unfit to be eaten. So Peter's starving. He's looking at this sheet full of meat, essentially, and none of it he can eat. It's like, it's like you're starving and you're standing in the line at Rodney Scott's and you can't eat any of it, right? Forgot your debit card or whatever. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of the situation for Peter. He's avoided eating all of these animals his entire life because he thinks that that's pleasing to God. He's trying to, to be as religious as he can. Um, it must have been so wild and confusing because this voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Like, go for it. Knock yourself out. How wild is that? Well, let's, let's check it out. Verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Like, never. Never going to happen. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Let me just say something here real quick. If God tells you something three times, you better listen, right? If God tells you something three times, you better listen. And so God's gotten Peter's attention. He doesn't really know exactly what God means, but he says, okay, God, I'm listening. Like, you repeated yourself enough. I'm paying attention, right? And so let's see what happens here. Because the thing is, is that what we're going to see in the rest of this story is I don't think that God's really talking about meat. I don't think God's really talking just about what animals you should and shouldn't eat. And I think Peter knows that. In verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Yeah, go figure, right? I would be too. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision... The Spirit said to him, here's God speaking clearly to him again, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Check this out. So he invited them in to be his guests. This might not seem like a big deal to us, but I want you all to understand. I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You've never stepped into the door of a Gentile's house. You've never had a Gentile in your house. And God forbid, you've never eaten with dirty people like that. But God says, go to them without hesitation. I've sent them. And then what does Peter do? He invites them in. Wow. Like, it's, it's a major paradigm shift for Peter. It's crazy that, that he would do this. And he, get this. It's not even his house. You remember? He's staying with Simon the Tanner. I almost wonder if he's like, hey, Simon, I got to have an awkward conversation with you. Listen, like, you know... You know how we're not supposed to let Gentiles in? Yeah, I, they're sitting at your dining room table. So, like, you know what I'm saying? It's such a tense and awkward and weird situation, but Peter hears the voice of God and he says, I'm convicted, I'm listening, do what you want. And he invites them in. This is huge. See, listen. What Peter's starting to see is that the gospel was spreading to new places and new people. God was creating this new family, this new community, where every ethnicity, every race, every socioeconomic background belongs, and we're all one in Christ, and we're unified by the Spirit. And Peter's starting to catch this vision, and he hears God, and he says, yeah, okay, I hear you, I hear you. Y'all come on in. He's connecting the dots now. When God said, don't call anything unclean or common that I have called clean, Peter goes, oh, you know, light bulb. Oh, he wasn't talking about animals. He was talking about people. And all of a sudden, Peter understands what God is telling him. He understands that God is saying, don't call the Gentiles who I have made clean, unclean, or common. Every single person, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of what you've been raised to think about them, every single person is valued and dearly loved by God. Listen, God's telling Peter, I love these people so much that I died for them, that I gave up my life, that they might be brought near. Don't you dare call anyone unclean or common. See, this is what Peter's understanding at this point, is that to God, what we eat is way less important than who we eat with. Peter is convicted by this vision that to God, what we eat is way less important than who we eat with. Let's continue in verse 23. The next day, he rose and went away with them. 
So now they're going back to Cornelius' house. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So he's bringing some friends. Jewish friends, he's bringing them. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and listen, had called together his relatives and close friends. They're having a full-on dinner party. Like, Peter goes from, I would never go into a Gentile's house, to like, oh, you invited me? Great. Can I bring my friends? Oh, great. I show up, and there's, oh, man, there's a lot of Gentiles here. This is awesome. Like, what a wild 180 turnaround. They're having a full-on dinner party. And in verse 25, it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. There are a couple things going on here, just with this one sentence that Peter says. First is that Peter is saying, I'm nothing special. I'm not someone to be worshipped, right? Jesus is the only one that deserves worship and honor and glory. You stand up. I'm just a man, right? So Peter's demystifying himself as an apostle. He's saying, I'm not really anything special. Just stand up. I'm just, I'm just a man, right? But notice he says, I too am a man. Which means that he's recognizing a mutual humanity between himself and this Roman soldier. That he's saying, you are a man. Because you're human, you, you matter. You're valuable. You have inherent dignity and worth just because you're created in the image of God. Just because you exist, God loves you and cares for you and desires you and values you. Peter communicates a lot in one sentence right here. Verse 27, and as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. Again, Luke's emphasizing, there's a lot of people here. Like, this is too, totally off limits, but it's happening. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then, why you sent for me? Man. Let me just point this out to you real quick. Peter says, y'all know the rules. You guys know the law. Like, it's, it's, it's unlawful for me to even associate with you. Let me just tell you this. You can search the Old Testament all you want. That, that rule, that law is not in there. Which tells me that the Jews had built up this cultural or relational or ideological barrier, right? They've kind of built a wall in between them and the Gentiles that God never wanted to exist. Peter thought that he was doing what God wanted him to do by not associating with Gentiles. But I'm going to tell you all, you look through the Old Testament and look for the commands that God gives Israel of how to treat outsiders and foreigners, is to treat them well, to treat them like family. And so at some point in history, the Jews got it twisted. And it makes me realize that sometimes we probably have ideological or cultural baggage that we carry into relationships as well. That's not from God. It's just maybe from our upbringing or from whatever it might be. 
And so we need to question those things. But check this out. Look at what he says. He says, I've been taught, God told me, not to call any person common or unclean. Let me tell you this this morning because this is something that Peter needed to hear, which means it's definitely something that we need to understand. There is no such thing as a common person. There's no such thing as a common person. Every single person that you see, the people you stand in line with at Publix, people that you see at the gas pump across from you at Parker's, the people in the other cars at the pickup lane at school, the people that are cheering against your kid at the sports game, every single person that you come across, every face that you see, is a person that is created in the image of God and dearly loved and desired by God. When I was writing this message, I was sitting at the Cane Bay Starbucks just to kind of get away from my office and, and all the people I work with. <laughs> and um, just to kind of focus and get my, get my thoughts together. And I was sitting there. It's open on the inside now, which is awesome. Um, but I was sitting there, and I was writing my message, and I looked up. And I was just asking God to speak to me and, you know, work in me and highlight the parts of the passage that he wanted me to teach on. And, and I was just looking around that Starbucks and I realized the, the diversity, even just in that Starbucks in that moment. And I was just going like, man, all of these different people, and it's not just, it's not just race, like it's like different ages, different, like, people from different cultural backgrounds. I heard a guy with, like, a New York accent, and then there's a dude with, like, a thick southern drawl, right? Like, there were all of these different kinds of people in this little Starbucks, and I'm looking around at all the faces and just going, man, God loves every single one of them. Like, in a way that I can't even understand. And, and it just kind of blew my mind. And this is something for us to understand, is that every single person is valuable to God. I'm just going to recap verses 33 through 37, because we don't really have the time to dig in. But essentially what happens is Peter gets to Cornelius' house. They're having this big old dinner party. Everybody's there. And, and Cornelius basically says, hey, what do you have to say to us? You know, Peter goes, hey, why, why'd you call me? <laughs> like, I went from, from Joppa to to Caesarea, what, what, what do you want? And Cornelius says, I don't know. The angel came to me and said that you had something to tell us. Next week, we're going to dig into what Peter told them, which is really, really cool. It's, it's a very powerful passage of Scripture. But for today, I want us to understand what, what God taught Peter and what I believe God has to teach our church in this passage of Scripture is that it's normal, right? We talked about it. It's normal for us to sort ourselves and to hang out with people that look, act, and think just like us. It's a normal thing that happens. We see it happen in culture. We see it happen in cities and neighborhoods and, and towns all over America. We see it. It's a normal thing. But what we've seen over and over again through the book of Acts is that God is doing something supernatural through his church. And so what that means is that God wants to do something different here than he's doing out there. <clears throat> when we say that we exist so that every man, woman, and child would have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel, we mean every man, woman, and child. 
And so when we recognize that there are barriers, whether it's relational or cultural or whatever, that might be keeping certain families or certain people from being a part of what God's doing here at Church at Cane Bay, then it's our job to break these down. That's the entire nature of the gospel. Look at this in Ephesians 2, chapter 13. This is Paul actually writing about Gentiles and Jews coming together, about different races and different ethnicities coming together, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I want you to think back to that eight mile wall. I want you to think about maybe the cultural and relational walls that we experience and that we live with. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying y'all built that wall. I didn't build that wall, right? But listen, the barrier exists and we live with it. What are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to be for every man, woman, and child. As Jesus' people, we need to tear them down. It's our calling. So right before Alyssa and I moved down here, um, I heard that there was a man that was going to be speaking in Detroit. His name is Dr. John M. Perkins. And uh, I'd read a few of his books, um, was really interested in his ministry, and I heard that he was speaking in Detroit. Now, he was speaking at uh, Rosedale Baptist Church, which is not in the hip, clean cleaned up, nice, shiny part of Detroit. It's in like the outskirts of the city, like rough, falling apart kind of part of Detroit, right? Kind of the forgotten part of Detroit, if you will. And so I drove there and I went to see him. Now, John M. Perkins is an awesome guy. He's, he's a black man. that he's, an, he's older. He's in his 80s, maybe early 90s at this point. Um, he was really active in the civil rights movement. He knew Martin Luther King Jr., and where some of those men that were part of that movement went more into the political arena and started trying to fix things that way, John M. Perkins felt called to enter the ministry and to have a ministry of reconciliation. That he felt called that, that if reconciliation is going to happen at all in America, that it's going to start with the church. That here is where all of that business starts. That we can try and approach it different ways is not really going to work. But this, this is a good place to start. And so he started. And he had a, a long ministry career. And I knew that his ministry, his public ministry was winding down. And so I went to go see him. I showed up a little bit late and I sat in the back. And um, right as I sat down, John M. Perkins walks up on the stage. And people were helping him because he's old and frail and weak. And uh, they put a chair right up front of the stage. And he sat down in the chair to preach because he's an old guy and he can't really stand up for very long. Um, and he preached from Ephesians 2, that passage that we just read. And let me tell you, this man preached with a Holy Spirit fire in his bones that you wouldn't believe. And he was so passionate about the message that, that God had given him to speak to the church in America that there were multiple times that he stood up out of his chair as he preached and his aides had to grab his arms on either side so that he didn't fall over. And he just spoke with such a passion and such a conviction 
to that room that God wanted to start that change here in our churches. And he put it so plainly. He preached Ephesians 2 better than I've ever heard anybody preach it. And he put it so plainly, he said this. I I wrote it down in my notebook and I found it this week. Reconciliation is the beginning and end of the gospel. God gets together with us and we get together with each other. We gotta find a way to get together. So I get, I, after, the, after he spoke, I actually got the chance to go shake his hand, uh, tell him thank you for all that he's done and for being obedient to God. And he signed one of the copies of his book that I have. Um, it meant a lot to me. And then I went and I got in my car and I started driving home. And I just remember driving home, sitting in my car, I turned the music off and I just was thinking about the diversity that was actually represented in that room as he spoke. All different kinds of people from all different neighborhoods all around Detroit, different you know, backgrounds and ages and races and socioeconomic statuses and, and everything. And we were all together in that room because we wanted Jesus to be known by every man, woman, and child in the greater Detroit area. And so we were there, not for John Perkins, but for the message that God had given him for the church. And I remember driving home that day and just thinking, man, that's what heaven's going to look like. All different kinds of people just worshiping Jesus because he's worthy. That's what heaven's going to look like. And then I had this convicting thought that the church that I was on staff at at the moment, that on Sundays we didn't look quite as much like heaven as that room did. We didn't have a big diversity of people from all different kinds of backgrounds and, you know, ethnicities and and political leanings and, and ideologies and all these different things. We didn't have a diverse church. We all kind of looked and acted and thought like each other. It's easy and comfortable that way, but that's not what heaven is going to look like. And so here's the vision that I want to cast to you all this morning as we close. The vision that I want to cast to you all this morning is what would it look like? How clearly would it speak the gospel to a separated and segregated culture if the church of Jesus was intentionally diverse? How clearly would it speak that the dividing walls of hostility have been broken down in the blood of Jesus Christ if every single person in this room is valued and belongs and we all come from different backgrounds and we all think a little differently and look a little differently and act a little differently but we rally around the fact that Jesus saves how powerful would that be would you pray with me Jesus we thank you so much for this this morning I thank you for speaking to us today through your word Jesus, I pray that as we continue our worship of you this morning, that you would would work on our hearts, Jesus. That we would hear your spirit working and moving in us and that we would respond appropriately. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. In his name, everyone said, amen. If you'll stand and sing with us.